First Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or a wrongdoer or a mischief maker. Yet if one suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But under that name, let him glorify God. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous man is scarcely saved, where will the impious and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. The beginning of the third century of our era, specifically in 202 A.D., Emperor Septimus Severus issued an edict making conversion to Christianity illegal. The resulting persecution was felt most severely in Carthage on the northern coast of Africa. A young girl, 22 years old, with an infant son, her name was Vibia Perpetua, was converted and joined a Bible study class and was arrested with her servant girl and put in prison. She nursed her little child in prison and made arrangements with her mother and her brother that they would take care of the child if anything awful should happen. The servant girl gave birth to a little baby while they were in jail together. When Perpetua's father heard that she was to be thrown into the arena with wild beasts, his heart sank and he tried to get her out of the prison and was only beaten. On the day of the execution, they took the men first to the arena, Pudens was the name of the prison governor who was standing at the gate. Satyrus was the Bible teacher taken first. He stopped at the gate, bore one last witness to Pudens, who later on became a Christian and himself suffered martyrdom. The men were thrown into the arena with a bear, a leopard, and a wild boar. And as Satyrus was mangled so severely, the crowd called out, He is well baptized! He is well baptized! Next, Perpetua and her maid were stripped and sent in to face a mad heifer. This time, the torture was such that the crowds called out, Enough! Enough! And they dragged Perpetua and her maid half-dead to the gladiator. Perpetua called out, Give out the word, brothers and sisters. Stand fast in the faith. Love one another. Don't let our suffering become a stumbling block to you. The first blow of the gladiator did not suffice and Perpetua grabbed the sword 
and led it to her throat. January 19, 1981, a group of terrorists called the M-19 broke into the SIL headquarters in Bogota, Colombia and kidnapped Chip Bitterman, young man with a wife and two children. The communique from the Terrorists said, Chet Bitterman will be executed unless the Summer Institute of Linguistics and all its members leave Columbia by 6 p.m. February 19. Wycliffe didn't budge. Brenda Bitterman waited 48 days while her husband was in captivity. On March 7, 1981, they shot him through the heart and left his body on a bus in Bogota. More than 100 Wycliffe Workers in Colombia were given the opportunity to change fields, and not a one of them applied to move. Two hundred volunteers came forward to take Chet Bitterman's place. I've heard stories like this ever since I was a little boy, and my recurrent feeling and thought has not been Where's God in all this? Where's God when a young father gets shot through the heart? My recurrent thought has been, could I stand it? What if it happened to me? Would I endure? Or would I try to rationalize a denial of Christ? I don't mean it. I don't really mean it, Lord. You understand. They don't. But you don't. Lord, I'd serve you so much more. I would serve you more alive than dead. Lord, my children need me. Would I be a coward and rationalize my own denial of Jesus? Or would I be like Vibia Perpetua? Now, I think it's very, very important for everybody in this room to ask yourself that question. To seriously imagine before your eyes what it would be like, for example, to be on a plane to Houston. Terrorists take it over. Cultic terrorists. I won't name any particular group, but I could imagine several that would do this in the world. Fly you to Havana. Stand at the door and say, we're going to blow this plane up in ten minutes. Anybody can get off who will say, Jesus Christ is not my Savior and Lord. And they start filing out. Laughing. Huh, is that all? And Noel and I sit there and look at each other as they come back the aisle. There are four boys waiting for us at home. What would you do? The reason it's important for you to ask that question, number one, is because we live in a world of amazing increase in sectarian, fundamentalist, religious violence. That day is not far away. Right now it's all conveniently in the Middle East and in India and a few other places. It won't be long until those kinds of militant religionists let it be known they hate Christians. 
But there's a more important reason than the possibility that it might happen to you. And that is whether or not it happens, asking what you would do will make a whale of a difference in your life. A Christian is a person who must say, Christ is my Lord. I will not deny Him if it costs me my life. That's a Christian. But as soon as you say that, a lot of things in your life begin to look ridiculous. I'll die for you, Lord Jesus, but I can't find time to meditate on your word a few minutes a day. I'll die for you, Lord Jesus, but prayer to you seems so unreal. I'll die for you, Lord Jesus, but I, I can't talk to Jim at work about your value to me. I'll die for you, Lord Jesus, but I can't give a whole tenth of my income to the cause for which Jesus died. Isn't that? One of the most wonderful ways to bring change into your life is to measure your life by whether or not you will die for Jesus. And if you say yes, everything changes. And if you say no, but if you're like me, you say yes, but God, I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I'd have the strength when the sword is lifted or when the gun is pointed. How can I know, Lord? And that's why I've chosen this text. 1 Peter 4, 12-19 To encourage you. Not to encourage you that you are going to escape trouble. But to encourage you that when it comes, you are going to endure. You're going to make it. Because the Holy Spirit of glory and of God is going to rest upon you. Now, I want to do three things with this text with you. One is to just unfold the situation so that you can see what these Christians in Asia Minor were facing. Two is to ask, in view of that situation, what did Peter say they should do? And three, where are we going to get the strength to do that? Okay, let's do number one first. What's the situation here? In a word, suffering is on the way for these churches. And the prospect of death. In verse 12, we get the first description of it. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which is coming upon you. Now, Peter is probably writing from Rome, and my guess is that what he has in view, even though he's writing to a place far away in the empire, is that Nero is not hard to predict. A conflagration of persecution is on the way in Rome and very likely it will spread over the empire and reach these churches. You remember, Nero killed Peter. He killed Paul. And he lit his court at night with Christians on posts burning. Now Peter sees that on the horizon. And the most amazing thing he has to say about it is in verse 17. He calls it the beginning of God's judgment starting with God's own people. For the time has come for judgment 
to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the end of those be who do not obey the gospel of God? That is not comforting to me at first glance. If I'm being taken away to the gladiators and I hear the word, this is the judgment of God, I'm not helped. I don't need a judging God in my last hour. That's what the text says. Now we've got to make a very careful distinction here. Otherwise we will make hash out of Scripture and misinterpret our sufferings. The text says that as the conflagration falls on these Christians... It is the beginning of the judgment of God that begins with the household of God. It does not say it is the wrath of God. The judgment of God is His decision to bring down hardship. Judgment means decision. A judgment is a decision. It does not say He is bringing wrath upon His people. On the contrary, verse 18 says that the judgment will not result in condemnation, but salvation. It says, if the righteous man is scarcely saved, he'll be saved through the judgment. What then does judgment mean? There's a little phrase in verse 12 that interprets the meaning of God's judgment for God's people. It says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you why? To prove you. To test you. The judgment of God, when it falls upon His own precious people, is not the judgment of His punishment, but the judgment of His purification. His purgation. His refinement of your faith. Turn back with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And you get a, a more full description of this and a text that many of you know and which is not quite as jarring as the one in chapter 4. It, it says in chapter 1 verse 6 that Christians may have to suffer various what? Trials. Now that is the same word used in chapter 4 verse 12. So that the genuineness of your faith might redound to praise and glory and honor. So God's purpose for His people when judgment falls upon them is not their punishment. The fires of God in this fiery ordeal are fires of purifying love for His people and punishing wrath for those who do not obey the gospel. And oh, that is an important distinction for you to keep in mind because the Bible nowhere promises that you will escape tribulation. On the contrary, the Bible says that when tribulation comes, it is the beginning of judgment and it will begin with you and me. But it will not be wrath from our Heavenly Father. For the church, it will be purifying love. And for unbelievers, punishing wrath. The Lord disciplines him whom he loves and every son he chastens. 
Hebrews 12 says, and the context is persecution unto death. Verse 13, this fiery ordeal is called sharing Christ's sufferings. Verse 14, it is called reproached for the name of Christ. Verse 16, it is called suffering as a Christian, under the name Christian. So what I see in these three verses is that Peter sees on the horizon a suffering coming. And the reason it's coming is because these people are ordinary Christians living like Jesus. Downtown Minneapolis. That's all. They're just ordinary Christians who don't keep it secret. I'm a Christian. I do what I do because Christ is in my heart. I want to be like Jesus. And Peter says, you will. All the way to the end. Verse 19 gives the last description of this situation. He calls it a suffering according to the will of God. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. People who try to solve the problem of suffering by saying not God's will for His people to suffer, have to take a big, wide detour around this verse and a lot of other verses in the New Testament and Old Testament. If the fiery ordeal, according to verse 17, is the beginning of God's judgment, then it is God's will. And so verse 19 is exactly what we expect after verse 17. The suffering of His people is according to His will. Let us not at Bethlehem dishonor the Lord by saying every time we suffer, oh, He has dropped the reins. They're dragging between the horse's feet. He's trying desperately to pick them up. His ways are strange. I grant that. His ways are very strange. But they are His ways. They are God's ways, according to verse 19. And our duty, according to verse 19, entrust your soul to a faithful Creator. Now that brings us to the second point. What should we do in response to this situation of suffering that's on the way? There are five admonitions in this text, at least, I think there are more, but I'm going to put them together into five. Arrange them in the order from the most basic to the most ultimate. First, verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Now, what does that mean? Isn't that a statement? No, God. No, God. Have a deep and true theology that knows how to encompass what's on the way so that when it comes, you don't say, where'd that come from? What's that got to do with God? This is a, an admonition to be a profound, deep, lay theologian. Everybody at Bethlehem should have a theology that can handle suffering. This is an admonition 
to know God. If you know that God sometimes wills the suffering of His people, according to verse 19, if you know that God's judgment begins at the household of the Lord, and if you know that it might touch you, you won't be surprised when it does. You won't say, Where's God when Chet Bitterman was shot through the heart and left behind a wife and two children? Come on, Pastor, tell me where God is. You won't talk like that. You might weep. We will weep. And you might get angry at sin. I hate the sin of terrorists. God, come! That's okay. But you will not be surprised and you will not shake your fist in God's face if you have studied the word of the Lord and become a good theologian. Confusion and uncertainty will not be yours. You will entrust your soul to a faithful creator. And that brings us to the second admonition. Verse 19. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Good theology has one purpose in life. To build good faith in a great God. The only reason we talk and think and study and write and preach is to build faith in a great and faithful Creator. That's all we're about here at Bethlehem. God's great purpose is to refine you in your faith, and He'll use suffering if He must. Satan's great purpose in your suffering is to devour your faith. Chapter 5, verse 8, he goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If you ask, what does he eat? What's his appetite hungry for? It's one thing. Your faith. And God, His will is the beautification of your faith. All we want to do is what Jesus did. What did He say at His hour of deepest trial? Father, into Your hand I entrust the same word as chapter 4, verse 12. I entrust my spirit. We just want to be like Jesus in His dying. Be conformed to Him in His death. 2 Corinthians 1.9, Paul says that the purpose of the suffering of a Christian is that he might cease to rely on himself and rely on the God who raises the dead. Third admonition. It flows out of good theology and great faith. It's in verse 13. And it's almost too much. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You don't know what it's like, Peter. You couldn't talk like that. You've never suffered. That's the way people will talk to you if you, if you say this to them. Well, I'm glad I don't have to say it because they're right. I haven't. But Peter had. He's got a right to say it. He lived it. You remember that text in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, where he and the apostles were taken before the Sanhedrin and they were flogged. 
And flogging in that day meant 39 things with leather straps and little pieces of metal. And you were open and bleeding when it was done. And then they walked out and Luke had the nerve to say, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Don't take it from me. My life has been a bed of roses. But take it from Peter. It can be done. And it shall be done at Bethlehem Baptist Church. If you admire somebody and you love them, and I hope all of you do admire and love Jesus. Then if you get lumped together with Jesus and treated the same as Jesus, it's an honor. What would you feel like if they came in here and they took away everybody they thought was on Jesus' side and left you on a bed of roses? Would you have joy abounding in your heart? No. Boy, as you walked out of here and got pushed into the vans, you would look at Jesus and say, we're together. I'm with you. I haven't denied you. There may be pain, but haven't you learned in your life that some of the deepest joys come from the soil of pain? Fourth admonition. It's found in verses 15 and 19. Verse 15 says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or a wrongdoer or a mischief maker. And then verse 19 gives the positive side. Do what is right. If you have a good theology, which gives birth to a strong faith, which overflows in joy in God, even in persecution, then obstacles to love are gone and incentives to hate are gone. And what's left? Righteousness. Returning good for evil and saying with Jesus, God forgive them, they don't know what to do. The final admonition is in verse 16, the second half. Under that name, that is under the name Christian, glorify God. God is glorified by you when you do things and say things that show He is glorious. If you trust Him, you show that He is gloriously trustworthy. If you rejoice in Him in the midst of trial, you show that He is gloriously adequate to fill up what is now being taken away from you, maybe even your life. And if you don't retaliate but love your persecutors and do right, then you show that God is an amazingly all-sufficient God that will cause your persecutors to say, there's a child of God. How else can you explain it? So let me sum up where we've been so far. The situation facing the people is that something is on the horizon of terrible proportions called a fiery ordeal with much suffering. Second, 
the admonition given by the apostle is number one, that they think about God rightly and develop a good theology. That this good truth and understanding about God lead to a great, strong faith in their creator. And that out of faith there flows a full and overflowing joy. And what joy is, is love and righteousness. And when people see that, God gets glory. That's the lesson of the text. And the question that remains is, God, I don't think I can. I don't think I have the power. I think if I had to watch my wife be killed. And so Peter writes for us wonderfully a verse. Verse 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Jesus said, you remember, blessed are you when men revile you and speak all manner of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice in that day and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. And my response to Jesus is, if I could keep the reward of your presence before me, I think if I could keep seeing it in all of its magnificent beauty and eternality, I think I could make it. I think I could endure. But Jesus, sometimes when I get sick, I get depressed because I can't keep it clear. It's going to be hard to keep the reward clear in my mind. It's going to be hard to hold fast, Jesus. How can I know I'll make it. And Peter gives us the answer. You're going to make it because the Holy Spirit of glory and of God is going to rest upon you in the hour of your trial. God, when you get your last final exam, is not going to be like a skeptical schoolmaster that sort of stands over in the corner I wonder how they're going to do on this. <laughs> Don't picture God like that. That is not God. God is going to come up to you with His Spirit of glory and whisper the answers in your ears. He will let you know the glory that will sustain your faith and get you through. You remember the story told by Corey Ten Boom? I don't know if I have all the details right because I heard it verbally and I don't know where it's written down, but I think I'll preserve her point. You remember she said as a girl, she used to ask her father, Daddy, I don't know if I could be strong if the Germans come. How can I know I'll make it? I don't want to be a traitor. And her daddy used an illustration that's so good. It's helped me so many times. He said to her, Corey, when I send you on a train trip and uh, you go up to your grandmother's house, do I give you your ticket three weeks ahead of time or just as you get on the train? And she said, well, just as I get on the train. And he said, God will give you the power in the hour of trial and not before. 
And that is so true. I know that we all experience those feelings I've had. I don't know if I could do it. I don't feel strong right now. But I've read enough stories of saints that tell about the coming of that special power in the hour of trial when we really need it. One last illustration and then we're done. Nero beheaded the Apostle Paul outside Rome about 67 A.D. Probably 2 Peter, 2 Timothy was his last letter. Picture this. Paul goes before the court. And it's a mock court. Everybody knows he's a marked man. Therefore, all of his friends desert him. This is just almost unbelievable to me after the partnership he shared. They desert him. He gives his defense. They give him one more day and say, we will hear you again tomorrow. But everybody knows that's a sham too. He goes back to his quarters and he gets out his pen and he writes his last letter to Timothy. And this is what he says. At my first defense, no one took my part. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength. I pray that you will remember this. That of all the sermons on the Holy Spirit, you will remember this. God will help you in your dying God will help you die. The Spirit of glory and of God will come upon you. And though right now you may feel very weak, I could never do it. I could never face the gun of an M19 terrorist. I could never face a lifted sword if I were captured in India. You will. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will give glory to the Father and to the Son. You will have magnificent courage beyond what you thought you were ever capable of and He will rest on you and carry you home.